All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, and then also to Acts chapter 12. So today, uh, we always, uh, the way we preach here at Waterfront, start at the top of a passage and work our way down. Uh, and uh, we've been studying Paul's second missionary journey and have made our way all the way to Acts chapter 18, 12, which I'm going to make this claim for you, might be the most important verse in the book of Acts that you never heard of, all right? Uh, this verse, Acts chapter 18, verse 12, might just be, archaeologically speaking, one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, this word, this uh, verse that we have here is very, very powerful, uh, and uh, I got to be honest with you, I did not understand the weight of it uh, until some heavy study uh, over this last stretch, but this is a really special verse, uh, Acts 18, verse 12, and uh, we're going to jump in and study it and uh, what happens after it uh, today. So our study today starts with this question. Have you ever lived in constant fear of something before? Right? Have you ever lived in constant fear of something before? Uh, that's where, again, everything you think about runs through the grid of whatever that specific thing is. And uh, we're kind of in a phase right now. Uh, when I was writing the message, uh, I thought of government, health, missing out. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different stuff. If you're in business, uh, there's a fear that you would miss out on the deal that could kind of set you up. Uh, for some of you, uh, in your places of business or in your positions, that you miss out on a promotion uh, that would be on the horizon for you. There's this fear of missing out. Uh, we are in one of the most restricted cities in the country when it comes to COVID. And so, again, there's all sorts of government stuff tied into that. Uh, and then health, obviously. Uh, sometimes we can live in constant fear uh, of uh, other stuff that's happening around us. I just want to point this out. If God is sovereign, then we have to believe that God is sovereign. Uh, we have to trust him in all things. When we live in fear, we end up operating in a way that we were never meant to operate. A uh, little story to explain that. Back when I was in uh, uh, the eighth grade, some of you got to hear my fight story not too long ago. I had one fight uh, that I ever was in, and uh, another guy started it, but I finished it. Anyway, no, I'm just saying. It was a great time. Ended up winning this fight, but all that to say, 13 years old, was on the football field, um, uh, fighting against a guy that, uh, that was the running back of the other team. And I'll never forget, at the end of the fight, he says to me, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. We're 13, all right? But he says, I'll kill you. And here's what happens. After the fight's over, I go back to my little house, and uh, I've met with my dad, and I said, Dad, this guy said he's going to kill me. And I mean, Dad's kind of smirking, and he's like, I think you're going to be all right, son. I think you're going to be okay. And I'm like, but no, he was so angry, and he fought me for all these people, and I think he's going to kill me. And Dad goes, I think you're going to be okay. I think you just need to lay down, get some sleep. And he goes, I think it'll be all right. Well, that night, I remember my dad goes to sleep. My mom goes to sleep. My room was on the back side of the house. And I remember I went to the front window and I just pulled down the shades. And for about two hours, I looked out like he's going to drive up at any point. Now you look back and you're like, yeah, what? In his mother's minivan, right? A 13-year-old, his mom was going to drop him off to come and shoot me. I mean, that probably was not going to happen. I'm looking out the window and I'm so afraid. And for several nights after that, I would look around and I would watch for this guy to come and to mess with me. We then went to his school. There was a basketball game. And I remember going to his school. And the whole time that we were at the school, I'm just looking around, looking around. What if he sees me? What if he sneaks up behind me? I just lived in that constant fear. 
Uh, we then would see him on the field. I transferred to a different school. And when I transferred to the different school, I remember thinking to myself, he's going to know my family moved. My family changed districts. And when we play him on the field, he's going to know that I'm number 44 this year instead of number 45 like I was before. I mean, I'm telling you, I was so worked up and in constant fear. And then some of you remember the story. When I finally got to see him again, where we acknowledged who we were, we played on the same high school football team. And on the first day of spring ball, I went up to him, so afraid, stuck out my hand, and I go, hey, I just want you to know we got into a fight when we were in the eighth grade. And I remember looking in his eyes. His eyes were basically saying, you need to be more specific, all right? I got into a lot of fights that year, all right? And I remember him saying, uh, it's water under the bridge. We're teammates now. He had not thought a day about it since the day that it happened, even though it had terrorized me and I had lived in fear for so long. Now, listen to me. You're going to have moments in your life that cause you anxiety, specifically in dealings with those who are in positions of authority. We all have to deal with it, whether it be at work, whether it be with government, whether it be with the health environment we have right now, again, whether it be with family. You're going to have some moments in your life where you deal with individuals who are in positions of authority. I want to encourage you, don't live in constant fear of those moments. What we're about to read in Scripture is that God has established those rulers and authorities to actually benefit and to purpose uh, to uh, to push forward the gospel message and the plan uh, that He has that the Lord has in place. Now look with me, if you will, Romans chapter thirteen, verses one through seven, and we're going to read some verses. Uh, that uh, I want you to view uh, in a different mindset. There's two different mindsets that you can take the passage that we're going to read today. One is with an American spirit, and one is with the Holy Spirit, all right? And so here's the deal. I want you to try, as we go through this passage, to differentiate between the two. We say at Waterfront regularly, we don't talk politics. Politics, politicians, and policies are always changing, but the Word of God stands forever, amen? We also say there's no law that could lead us better than Scripture, and there's no person who could lead us better than Jesus. And so it's through that mindset. What we're going to read today might rub your American spirit just a little bit the wrong way. I'm not telling you how to think and to live politically. I want us to read a passage through the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul is writing in Romans to a group that is under one of the most pagan governments in the history of the world. He's writing to the church in how they should interact when authorities in a pagan government put weights upon them. Now, just for the record, the verses that we are about to read have been hijacked by both the left and the right politically to enforce whoever a new leader is in the country uh, that comes into power. That's not why Paul is writing this. He's writing in how the church should operate, no matter what government it is that they are serving under, whether it be in Europe, whether it be in the Roman Empire, whether it be in America, or, toward the ends, or to the ends of the earth. And so it's with that in mind, don't hear American spirit, hear Holy Spirit here. You ready? Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? For some of you, that's the million dollar question right there. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. 
He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. That's why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who will give their full time to governing. Now, verse 7 is where the power is. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now stop right there for just a minute. Like I said, don't view it American spirit. I want you to view Holy Spirit. Because of what I'm telling you today is in a city like this, this doesn't mean that if there's an issue that you just sit back and take it. It means for your little spirit, you need to know if things are happening that are beyond your control, don't be like I was looking out the window thinking that somebody's out to get you every minute of every day. If God is sovereign, then we have to trust that he is sovereign. If you're taking notes, write this down. It is not spiritually healthy to live in constant fear of anything if we truly believe God is sovereign. Let me say it again. It is not spiritually healthy to live in constant fear of anything if we truly believe that God is sovereign. I've told you this story before, but back in 1986, my father got busted in Romania uh, for smuggling Bibles into the uh, Christian church that was there while they were under communist rule. And uh, uh, there was a family named the Ceausescus that were in power. It was an awful, awful regime. Uh, and again, uh, the, uh, the Iron Curtain was beginning to crumble in Europe, but it would crumble much later uh, in Romania than it did in other places. And so I'll never forget, dad gets thrown out of the country. I was about five, six years old at the time. Dad gets thrown out of the country, sent back to the United States. And then when the Iron Curtain fell, the pastors there in Romania messaged my dad and said, come back, come see the fruits of your labor. They're gone. We're still here. Come and see what God is doing in our country now. And I remember dad said to this man, Titi Bolzan, who was the pastor there in Aradia, he said, Titi, is it safe? If I show up, is it going to be safe? And the famous line that Titi Bolzan said to my father was, he said, John, God is sovereign they cannot touch us till it's time. God is sovereign. They cannot touch us till it's time. What he was saying was, I can't guarantee that it'll be safe, but if you're supposed to come, God will make a way for you to come. We as believers have to remember that. We have to remember that it is never God's will for you to live in constant fear of the things around us. From a biblical perspective, Holy Spirit, not American spirit, there's never a time when a believer should be looking out the window every day, scared to death that everything's going to fall apart. We have to trust the Lord. There's some of you in your work situation, and you needed to hear that today. To look and to live in constant fear is not the way that you should operate. Some of you have big dates that are on the calendar. You've got a deposition that you've got to give. You've got a court date that's coming up. Some of you have got a performance review that you know has the potential to not be very good. You know the tough thing about performance reviews? Sometimes they're very rational, and then other times it really does just depend on whoever the boss is that's providing the performance review, right? I share that with you just to say, a believer in Jesus Christ need not live in constant fear of anything, including those moments where we have run-ins with authorities. So here's our big question today that the passage addresses. What should we remember when we cross paths with authority? What should we remember when we cross paths with authority? There are some of you this is going to be very applicable for today, and some of you just need to file this away because at some point in our life, we all have one of these moments, all right? Whether, wherever you are today, my prayer is that the Lord would speak to you. Okay, now flip over to Acts 18, and we're back to our story uh, that we've been going through. Acts 18, starting in verse 12, the most important verse you've never heard of, all right? Are you ready for this? 
Chapter uh, Acts 18, verse 12. This is right after Paul has started the church. Uh, remember, he goes to Corinth. He's planting another church there. They run him out of the synagogue, and he literally goes next door uh, and pastors a church, starts pastoring a church there, starts a church. He gets nervous and scared because there's a court date on the calendar. There's a group of Jews from the synagogue that have taken him to court, uh, and uh, it could end up very badly for him. A court date uh, uh, during this day and time could end up with Paul being put to death. And so he's scared to death. He's nervous. And the study we did last week, Jesus visits him and says, don't be silent. Uh, keep on speaking. Don't worry. I have many people in this city. And then all of a sudden, it says Paul stays for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, during that year and a half is where we get verse 12. Here's what it says. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Underline those first six words because those six words are incredibly important. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. You can also underline united attack. Now, some of you might say, how is this one of the most important verses in the book of Acts? Let me tell you why. This is a pretty cool little story. So this verse that Gallio is the proconsul of Achaia. Achaia was the area, the district of Achaia was Delphi Athens and Corinth. Back in this day and time, this was like the most important district in this portion of the Roman Empire. I mean, this area, it was a very, very big move and shaking place. There were lots of people. There was lots of money. Uh, and I'm telling you, for Gallio to be the proconsul of Achaia meant that he was a big deal. Again, it kind of be like being the majority leader. I mean, he's, he, is, he is one here. When he speaks, people listen. But this is what's so interesting. The proconsul of Achaia was a two-year term, just like our house side here. It was a two-year term, and he was proconsul of Achaia for one term, from 51 AD to 53 AD. Not only that, but give you a little background. Gallio came from a very, very important family. Gallio's dad uh, was a famous historian who wrote about a bunch of the wars that took place during that time. And then some of you, if you've studied philosophy, you know Gallio's brother. Gallio's brother was a dude named Seneca. And Seneca was a famous philosopher under Emperor Claudius. And Claudius then gets mad at him. And in 41 AD, sends him into exile because he was what they called a Stoic philosopher. Remember we talked about Stoic and Epicurean? Stoic meant based on virtue. Epicurean meant based on pleasure. Claudius gets mad at this virtuous guy. Virtuous kind of like Socrates. Gets mad at this virtuous guy. Sends him out uh, in exile uh, while he pursues Epicurean pursuits, pleasure pursuits. But then when we get to 49, AD, a dude named Nero becomes emperor, and Nero was a lunatic. From the time he was young, Nero was a lunatic. So the elders get together and they go, you know what? Nero doesn't need much pleasure. We need to bring some of the Stoics back in to be around him so that he can learn some virtue. So in 49 AD, Seneca is brought out of exile to come into the court there and to serve with Nero and teach him some values, teach him some virtue. Well, then he comes in and says, you know what? Since I'm teaching virtue here, we could really use my brother Gallio to teach some virtue, 
to our House of Representatives too. Let's bring Gallio in and make him pro-council. And in 51 AD, they bring Gallio in and he serves in this position from 51 to 53. He was actually referred to in the culture as Sweet Gallio. It wasn't sweet because he was, he was a, a weak, sweet because he had a really gentle temperament about him. Virtuous guy. Now I'll tell you that story, listen to this. By 65 AD, their nephew, a dude named Lucan, who's a famous poet. At 25 years old, Lucan is a part of an insurrection that takes place against Emperor Nero. They catch him, and Lucan then says, if I turn in my whole family as part of the insurrection, will you allow me to live? Lucan turns in his family, and instead they kill them all by forced suicide in 65 AD, even though it was never proven that Seneca or Gallio ever were part of the insurrection. Now listen to me. Don't miss this. So why is this important? Because as you go through the book of Acts, you have this amazing historical story. But you need proof to put down your first pillar, your first foundation piece, so that you can figure out when exactly in history this took place. This story, Acts 18, 12. Did you know that if you go to the old city of Corinth to this day, there is still a pillar there that says Gallio, 51 AD to 53 AD. What this little verse does is place the first foundational stone archaeologically so that then you can prove his missionary journey to Athens. You can prove his missionary journey to Thessalonica. You can prove Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. And all the dates begin to fall into place because of this one simple story. Not only that, but it says, according to Roman history... It says that Gallio purchased what they called the Bema seat. It was the judgment seat. It still stands to this day in the old city of Corinth. He personally paid for the judgment seat that Paul was about to stand before. All this proof of the truth of Scripture from this one simple verse. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? So what should we remember when we cross paths with authority? That entire story was just to say this. Number one, God might be up to something bigger. God might be up to something bigger. I can guarantee you when Paul had this court date set with there was a united attack against him, I guarantee you he didn't think, whoa, this case that I'm going to do in front of this judge is going to have ramifications 2,000 years later. I guarantee you he had no clue that this was going to be something to archaeologically speaking prove the truth of Scripture and give it historical context. I guarantee you that was not the most forefront thing on Paul's mind. And yet, God was up to something so very, very special with this and setting up something awesome here. Not only that, but this is interesting too. The court case that we're about to read through, the court case was basically before the Supreme Court and this would set the tone for the way the church was able to spread all throughout Europe and Asia. If you've ever been to a, a nice art museum before where it's got tapestries, I love our art museums here. The, 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 the DC Museum of Art over here is one of my absolute favorites. Um, but I'll never forget the first time going to Philadelphia and seeing that art museum. You ever saw the movie Rocky? That's the one where you, he runs up the steps at the end. Just absolutely love it. Uh, sad note, it's closed on Mondays, so don't go on Monday, all right? You will run up the steps and look like an idiot, uh, which my wife and I have done twice. Uh, don't go on Monday, it's closed, all right? 
All that to say, when you go to Philadelphia Museum of Art, got these amazing pieces, but in the lobby, you walk in. It was the first time I'd ever seen huge tapestries before. Just these beautiful, uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, woven pieces that tell just an amazing story. As big as this wall over here on this side, just amazing pieces. And what makes it so amazing is each thread, each individual thread goes across. But what it puts together is something much, much bigger and something truly amazing and beautiful. If you're taking notes, write this down. Every thread in a great tapestry is purposeful and meticulously placed to bring about a glorious image that tells a story. Every thread in a great tapestry is purposeful and meticulously placed to bring about a glorious image that tells a story. Our lives are threads in the great tapestry that God is weaving together. So many times we don't know why there are the twists and turns that there are. We don't know why we were placed in the place that we were placed. And yet the Lord is putting something together that is very, very special and truly lovely to look at. God might be up to something bigger. When you cross paths with authority and you truly have no choice in that matter, I want to encourage you, don't view it immediately with hatred or angst or that constant fear. Be one who goes into it going, if the Lord has brought me across this moment, there must be something that he is up to. Save your spot there in Acts 18 and now flip over to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17, Paul writes it this way and I think it's beautiful. He writes about Jesus specifically. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 uh, through 17. He writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Paul writes here very powerfully about the supremacy of who Jesus is and whether we are able to see it, visible or invisible, God is in charge of all these things we find again him talking about the rulers and the powers and authorities that Jesus is over all those things so when we are in our macro or when we are in our micro moment we have to remember the macro plan of almighty God because if you're like me when I get micro squeezed I get to thinking that everything is about that micro moment and I forget the big things that God is doing all around me if you're in one of those squeezed moments I want to encourage you, take a second to step back and look big picture. You ever gone through a breakup before? Breakup is one of those best illustrations of how this thing works. Micro, you are squeezed. Everything in your world has just shifted and changed. But macro, there are way bigger things that could be taking place on the other side. Other places that God could be leading you. You ever lost a job? Micro? I mean, you are squeezed and it just feels like everything is falling to pieces. It just feels like everything is in an uproar. But macro, at this point, God could take you to do anything, anywhere. Macro, he's up to something. And you're different after you've had those experiences. You ever gone through a breakup or you've lost your job and afterwards, I mean, you're talking weeks, months, years afterwards, you're able to look back and you go, I am a much better person I'm a much better Christ follower because I experienced that failure. You ever had those moments before? 
What we find here in this passage is with Paul, God is up to something that will literally be affecting us two millennia later from the moment it takes place. It begs the question, I'm just going to be real honest with you, do you have an unhealthy fear of authority? Do you have an unhealthy fear of authority? Is it something that sits on you so heavily that you cannot think or process anything else because you want to be out from under it? Now, just for the record, that's why I said American spirit, Holy Spirit. We as Americans want to live in freedom, correct? It's who we are. It's a foundational value. But when it comes to your walk with Almighty God, we sit under His authority. And it says there very clearly in Romans 13, when we run up against a brick wall of authority, it has been established by God in that moment, and He knows it's a problem, and He will lead us through it. Now save your spot, or excuse me, now flip back over to Acts chapter 18, and let's look at verses 13 through 16. Here's what it says next. Again, there's this united attack on Paul. All these groups have come together. They brought it to Gallio, and now verse 13. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Verse 14, look at this. Just as Paul was about to speak. Underline and highlight, just as Paul was about to speak. Gallio said to the Jews, if you were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable and unreasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, underline words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Stop right there for just a minute. You got to understand what's happened here. Remember in the previous verses, Paul has been told by Jesus himself, don't be silent. Keep on speaking. I have many people in this city. So I guarantee you, Paul's gone into this moment and he's like, yeah, here we go. Might be the last sermon I ever preached. The way that these courts work in the ancient world, if you got a negative review, they killed you right there in the middle of the courtroom. And so here's what happens. He goes, yep, I got this. I'm ready. I'm ready to speak. And all of a sudden they go, he's done things that are against the law. We want you to take vengeance on him. And then Paul goes, your honor. And Gallio goes, "Uh, before you say something, young man. I want to establish a precedent here. Remember, he's over the Achaia. He's in the most important district. He's like the majority leader. He stands up and says, I want to make a Supreme Court edict before we hear your case out. He says, "Uh, don't say anything while I'm speaking. And here's the deal. Paul, one of the greatest orators as far as Christianity goes, in the history of the world. You know he had something to say, and you know he was going to say it well. But in this moment, the power of the Holy Spirit hits him, and he knows, even though I should speak up for Almighty God, he wants me to be quiet right now. And Paul shuts up. He respects authority. He gives honor to his honor. So what happens? All of a sudden, Gallio says, "Uh, I want to establish this as a precedent. Names and words do not warrant you wasting this court's time. Now listen to me. This was the Supreme Court decision that made its way through the entire Roman Empire. That if it was a matter of religious struggle, that the Roman court would not hear it. Do you know what just happened? This just planted, this just created fertile soil For the gospel to spread throughout the entirety of Europe and Asia. This simple, I don't want to hear it decision. In the two years 
that Gallio served as proconsul when he would be dead 14 years later, wrongfully accused and forced into suicide. This moment was so critical and he was meant to be a friend of the faith. Don't miss this. Even though he wasn't a believer, he was still reasonable and the Lord has established reasonable people typically in positions of authority so that they can help us along the way. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What should we remember when we cross paths with authority? Number one, God might be up to something bigger. And number two, many in authority are reasonable. Notice I didn't say all, all right? (laughs) Many in authority are reasonable. Notice I didn't say all. You're going to run across some lunatics from time to time, okay? It's just the way the world works. But listen to me. Lunatics don't typically stay in those positions of leadership. They get run off. Hadn't you been around long enough to figure that out? They do get run off. And if you truly are in a circumstance where you run into a lunatic, usually your story gets picked up and then things are righted much later. But for the most part, give them the benefit of the doubt. Some of you hate authority so viciously that anyone in authority immediately operates at a deficit with you And you would not want anyone to do that to you, would you? Why do we do it to those who are in positions of authority? There's an automatic questioning where we should be neutral. Come into it and let them stand on their own two feet. Allow God to use them. Maybe just maybe he's positioned them for such a time as this so that the gospel will be able to spread with power. Many in authority are reasonable. Notice I didn't say all. If you're taking notes, next little word here, unreasonable authority figures are often not long for their position. Let me say that again. Unreasonable authority figures are often not long for their position. But when we're in the strain of the micro, we forget the vision of the macro. I want to give you an example of that. Um, The very first wreck I ever got into was driving on uh, Indiana Avenue uh, in Lubbock, Texas, I had just finished up, uh, had just finished up football practice, and uh, I'm driving down Indiana Avenue. Got my buddy Cleo next to me. We're driving slow because, I mean, we just finished football, and we didn't want to go home, neither one of us. And so I drove Cleo to his house and was driving back to have to drive back to my house afterwards. We're sitting there. We both played fullback and linebacker during those days, and so we're jamming out to something in my little 1987 Honda Accord, and uh, uh, with a stick shift in the middle. And I remember I'm driving. I'm in the far right lane driving at about 35 miles an hour. It's a 40 mile an hour speed limit. And then all of a sudden, in between 34th Street and 19th Street in Lubbock, Texas, a woman pulls out in a Mercury, pulls out and tries to make it across to turn left. And she guns it, but doesn't quite get out in time. And I end up hitting her on the side and she spins out over in the opposite direction. It was 100% her fault. I'm on the main drag. She's trying to turn left and she jumped out in front. Well, we get so nervous. Your adrenaline's pumping. And I remember cars stuck right there. Plus 1987 Honda Accord had the pop-up headlights on the front of it. I've totaled that car. I mean, just right there with that one little fender bender. And so I'm there. It's her fault completely. And I'm there. Cleo says, man, are you okay? I said, I'm okay. Are you okay? Well, then get out of the car and the woman is kind of staggering around. Well, I walk over to her and I go, ma'am, are you okay? She says, I'm fine. I'm fine. Weren't you going a little fast? I mean, at that point, flowing with adrenaline, I wasn't speeding. We were driving less than the speed limit. But because of the adrenaline of the moment, I go, uh, I don't think so. 
I go, I, I just, I, we were just driving down the road. And she just goes, oh, well, about that time a police car pulled up. And then when the police car pulls up, she all of a sudden goes, oh, he hit me out of nowhere. Oh, he just came. He was driving so fast. And she's yelling. And I'm over there with Cleo. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like, oh, I'm so angry because of what she's saying. It's lies. And I get so angry and puff up. And then all of a sudden, I go, but, but, but. And the officer goes, you sit down. I go, and I'm about to blow up. I'm saying curse words that a pastor should never say over there with my buddy Cleo. Cleo looks at me, and praise God, he was there. Cleo puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, hey, man, just sit down. He'll figure it out. I was like, but, but, but. He goes, no buts. Just sit down. He'll figure it out. We sit down on the curb. This is before the time of cell phones. This was like 1997, all right? Hey, before the time everybody and their dog had a cell phone. And so I'm sitting on the curb, can't even call my parents, just trying to go through. My car's totaled, got this lady lying about us. And I'll never forget, the police officer is turned this way and he's taking notes as she's talking and just doing this. And I watch it. He stops, he turns, holds up his finger to her and then walks over to me. And he goes... This is 100% her fault. He said, I am so sorry uh, that I was rude to you a second ago. He said, if you wait here, he said, she's going to get you a new car after this is all over. (laughs) Now listen, I wish I could tell you it turns out that way in every circumstance. It doesn't. But in the micro moment, we've got to understand when we're under pressure that God is putting together a tapestry for the ages And your life is so important. You know what else you learn looking at a tapestry? You don't look at it and go, man, what a bunch of insignificant threads. You look at it and you go, whoa, if one of those is out of place, if one of those is not where it's exactly supposed to be, then it messes up the entire picture. It is so meticulously and purposely placed. The struggle that you're navigating, specifically with those in positions of authority, just know the Lord knows it's hard and he's done it very intentionally to allow this moment to create something much bigger than you are. It begs the question, are you ready? Do people in authority operate at an immediate deficit with you? Do people in authority operate at an immediate deficit with you? If that's you, then that is your problem before it is their problem. Do they operate in an immediate deficit with you? You would do better personally You would do better spiritually, and you would do better just in general with the law if you operated from the perspective of neutral, not deficit, and not even necessarily benefit of the doubt. But if you operate at a neutral perspective and not at a deficit, you would be shocked. The Lord is up to something, and there are reasonable people out there, even those that don't share our faith. There are reasonable people out there that can end up, through the hand of Almighty God, a springboard to help the gospel message go forward. And then we got verse 18. Excuse me, verse 17. Let's look back and we'll, uh, we'll close up today with this. So again, go in. Gallio says, I don't want to hear it. If it involves names and words and your own law, then y'all settle it yourself. And not just here, but all throughout the rest of the world as well. So he ejected them from the court. Look at verse 17. It says, then... They all turned on Sosthenes, underline Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and they beat him in front of the court. 
But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Now stop right there for just a minute. Gallio here is establishing that they get to do whatever it is that they want to do if it's an issue or dispute with their law. And they're like, oh yeah? Well, what if we beat this guy up for no reason? And he's like, it's your law, your deal. The attitude of the mob was somebody's getting beat today. And you got Paul over there watching going, are you kidding me? Why beat up Sosthenes? Why beat up the synagogue ruler? In fact, from verse 8 in Acts chapter 18, we find out that there was a dude named Crispus who was the synagogue ruler before. Sosthenes has not even been there very long at Corinth as the synagogue ruler. The other guy, Crispus, had gotten saved and was basically the leader of the house church that was taking place next door. Sosthenes then comes in, and then this is so crazy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, guess who Paul greets in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 when he writes his first letter? He greets Sosthenes and the brothers. Now, just for the record, we have no proof that it was that specific Sosthenes, but it's probable. It is highly probable that that was the guy. Sosthenes is either a new believer in 1 Corinthians 1.1 or he is the synagogue replacement that gets beat up for no reason. And it's possible the story of Sosthenes is if they would beat me up for no reason, maybe I ought to give this Christianity thing a chance after all. All of a sudden he ends up becoming a believer. It begs the question, or it begs the final statement here. What should we remember when we cross paths with authorities? Number one, God might be up to something bigger. Number two, many in authority are reasonable. Uh, no, not all. Uh, and then number three, God can use authorities to expose your persecutors. God can use authorities to expose your persecutors. There is not a single person that heard this story that would have walked away from it and gone, yep, yeah, Sosthenes deserved to get beat up. Anybody in that circumstance went, they beat up Sosthenes? Why? Wasn't he on the side of the group standing up? For the Jewish synagogue, why in the world would they beat up Sosthenes? Because Jesus says in Matthew 15, what's in a man comes out of a man. You see, when you're squeezed, if good is in you, then good is what's exposed. For your persecutors, when they are squeezed, what comes out of them? The wickedness that's been stored up. We can become so involved in our own micro world that we forget macro that the world is wicked. And when they are squeezed, the truth comes out of them just like it comes out of us. It begs this final statement today. You are not the only one stressed out by an encounter with the authorities. You are not the only one stressed out by an encounter with the authorities. You're stressed. The persecuting parties are stressed. And then those who are in the position of authority trying to prove the case one way or another, they also are stressed. You're not the only one who's got problems in this. What's the good news? That God is sovereign, that he is over all of it, and we need not fear. One last little story, and we'll close. Uh, save, or, uh, flip over to uh, uh, Acts chapter 5, just a few pages, and we're going to read verses 33 through 40, just very briefly. In Acts chapter 5, we get almost a parallel of what's taking place here in Acts 18 with a man named Gamaliel with the early church believers. This passage is crazy because basically they've rounded up all the disciples at this point, all of the apostles, and they're trying to decide whether they're going to kill all of them or not. 
They'll either let him go or they're going to kill him right here in this moment. And I'm telling you, Peter and John have stood up. They've proclaimed the name of Jesus so powerfully. And then in verse 33, I mean, they want to finally just put him to death, squelch everything. I mean, this truly is one of the most important moments in the early church. Here's what it says in verse 33. When they heard this, this is the Pharisee group, they were furious and they wanted to put all of them to death, all the apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel... A teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, they had disappeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, but he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Look at verse 40. This is going to be remnants of, verse, of chapter 18 uh, in Acts. His speech persuaded them. So then they called the apostles in and they had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let him go. Stop right there for a minute. Don't you love that at the end of this one, they come up against a rational leader, the mob, and the mob says at the end, all right, we'll let them go, but somebody's getting beat today. Isn't that interesting? In Acts 18 and Acts chapter 5, the mob wants blood and they want it now. But do you know what happens when the mob does that? It causes outsiders, other rational thinking people to scratch their head and they go, they just wanted to beat somebody up. They were just mad. This didn't have anything to do with godliness. This had to do with something that was in them. Now listen to me. It begs the question, our final question. Have you properly prepared your heart and mind for the big moment? Have you properly prepared your heart and mind for the big moment? It's tough when you stand up in front of a mob that's going to beat somebody up and they would like it to be you. But in that moment, if your heart and your mind are prepared, then the Lord can do things and intervene and you are able to receive it. And even though Paul is ready to speak, he knows that now is the time the Holy Spirit's calling him to be quiet. American Spirit says, speak out. Holy Spirit, in this circumstance, says, just wait and let them do the talking. I might be up to something bigger that's happening. For those of you who've got a deposition to give, a court date, a performance review, I want to encourage you. Get your heart and your mind right for that moment so that if the Lord says, speak, you speak and you do it with gusto and power. But if the Spirit says, shut your mouth, I'm up to something, that you have the courage to do that as well. I hope this was helpful. Pastor Wayne called it exciting. This was probably not the most exciting of messages. I just want to thank you for staying awake today. Most of you, all right? I want to thank you for staying awake. Maybe just maybe you were supposed to hear this today. Y'all ready? Let's bow our heads for prayer.